Welcome everybody to Eagleburg Church. So good to have you with us today. Uh, before I dive in, I want to talk a little bit about last weekend. Because last weekend we did the message at Faribault Prison and we got so much feedback from you and many others who said that was powerful. That closing song, that moment, that was so emotional and it just, it just moved me. And so people have asked me this week, like, can I see that service? Yes, you can. You can go on our website at eaglebrookchurch.com and you can take that experience. And people have also asked me, what was it like speaking in a prison? And I just have three quick reflections. The first one was, I was nervous. I get a little nervous every time I speak, but this was the most nervous I can remember being in at least 10 years. I was pacing in the back because at one point I was kind of like losing my breath during the worship. I just kind of had this paralyzing thought that I was going to have to get up in front of this group of men that I was speaking to and open my mouth. And that thought just terrified me because I was looking at these guys and they've got like tattoos and they're huge. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get up there and be like, hey guys, you know, and <laughs> I'm going to sound like such a weenie. And I'm like, oh, I just, I'm going to pace, you know, I just didn't know what to do. Uh, my second reflection was this, that in Matthew 25, Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. And Jesus wasn't literally in prison, but what he meant was when you visit someone in prison, it's like you're visiting Jesus. And so I drove away that day and I thought, how many times in our life do we get to do something where Jesus says, when you do this, it's like you're doing it for me. It was an absolute honor to be there. The third reflection that I had was I met a lot of Eaglebrook people when I was there. And there was one guy who came up to me and he said, uh, I was just volunteering at White Bear in March. I was like, oh, where were you volunteering? <laughs> and, and then I had another guy in line who said, uh, where do you guys have campuses? And the guy behind him was like, Blaine, Woodbury, Wood, you know, Anoka. And he just started rattling them off. Now, there's two different ways you can look at that. The one way you can look at it is you can say, well, that's really disappointing that someone who's a part of our church has done something that would cause them to be in prison. But the way that I tended to look at it was I was so grateful that they weren't embarrassed and they weren't ashamed and that they could call this church their home. It's one of the things that I love the most about Eaglebrook, that no matter who you are or what you've done in the past, you can come and you can belong. And you can receive grace and mercy and forgiveness and a whole new start. I used to come to church when I was brand new to my faith. And I'd walk in. I think, oh, everybody here knows that I don't normally go to church. And they know I'm not a Christian. And they probably can tell all the bad things I've done. And I love being in a place where no matter what you've done or who you are, you can come and you can receive grace and mercy from Christ. If you're new to our church and you've felt that way coming in, I just want you to know that you belong here. And this can be your home. In fact, one of the things that I felt like God was speaking to me as I was about to go up and speak was this, don't look down on them. Yeah, I'm not up here and they're not down here. I just felt like God saying, don't look down on them. We're all one moment of losing self-control away from being in a situation like that. And as I was around these men who were passionate about Jesus and worshiping him and loving God, like I said, it was an absolute honor to be able to be there. All right, enough about last week. This week, we are continuing on in a series called The Four Enemies of Our Soul. There are enemies of your soul, and they want to pull you away from God, and they want to steal the peace that Jesus Christ offers to you. And what we've said so far in this series is this. It all starts with a lie. 
When we believe a lie and our flesh starts to become tempted to act upon that lie, that's where it all begins. Today's message is titled The World. The world is an enemy of your soul and of my soul. Wouldn't you agree that there's a system in our world, it's hard to even put your finger on what it is, but there's a popular way of thinking and believing that tends to normalize sin. We, we just live in a world where you're kind of all around it, you don't even really think about it, but the world tells you it's not a big deal. I mean, that's just, that's just normal. I mean, there, as long as you're happy, as long as you're in love, as long as you're true to yourself, it just, it's fine. The world tends to normalize sin. If you're watching any NBA game this fall, what you might see on the broadcast is they'll show the players walking through the back tunnel of the arena on the way into the locker room. And you might wonder, well, why would they show players walking through an arena tunnel? The reason is they want you to see how the players are dressed. They want you to see the fashion that the players wear to the games, because oftentimes it's pretty interesting. And so the team's social media page will pick this up. They'll take a picture of the player. They'll post it on their team's social media page. And they always use this one word. This one word will always be in every social media post that's showing the fashion. The word is this, drip. If you don't know what drip means, drip means high-end, trendy fashion. Would you like to see what goes for high-end, trendy fashion these days? Here's a picture of Kyle Kuzma. He plays for the Washington Wizards. <laughs> Kyle, where are your arms? I don't, where are they? I, I think he bought that online and was surprised at the size <laughs> that he got. But here's the next one. Here's James Harden. Plays for the Philadelphia 76ers. You can't tell because you can't really see his face, but he's got the cool Fruity Pebble slippers or something going on there. <laughs> this next one is Russell Westbrook who plays for the Clippers. I don't know what's going on there, but that's a lot of drip. Now, you might wonder, why are you showing us those pictures? Because if you showed up at the Blaine Fleet Farm, <laughs> dressed like that, that would not be normal. People would look at you a little funny. If your husband came down for church and his shirt had holes right here, large ones, you would say to your husband, go change. You are not wearing that to church. You need to go put your golf shirt on again because that is just not normal. But when you're looking at NBA players walking through the tunnel on the way to the game, it kind of is normal. You kind of say, well, yeah, that's, that's a lot of drip. That's real drippy. That's drippiness. I mean, you just, you kind of just look at it and go, yeah, that's fine. It's the reason why Kirk Cousins the quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings, when he showed up at a press conference wearing this shirt, which was from Kohl's, people lost their minds. They're like, what are you doing saving your Kohl's cash to buy that shirt, wearing it to a press conference? Kurt, you are an NFL quarterback. That's not how quarterbacks are supposed to dress. So what do they do? On the plane ride home, here's what they did to Kurt. They said, hey, take off the coal shirt, get some chains on, get the cool glasses. You need a lot more drip because that's normal for a professional athlete. 
Now, we're just talking about fashion and what's normal for fashion in certain situations and what's not normal, and, and that's kind of good-natured. But what about when we talk about more serious issues? In 1955, a woman named Rosa Parks was forced to the back of the bus because of the color of her skin. Now, that's abhorrent to us today, and rightfully so. But what's scary is at the time, there was those who thought that was normal. In the 1940s, across the Atlantic, there were intelligent, smart Germans who thought that feeding Jewish people into incinerators in concentration camps was normal, was acceptable. Now, that's abhorrent to us today, and rightfully so. But what's scary is that there were some at the time, who thought that that was normal? Around the same time in Hollywood, they would pay actors to smoke cigarettes as a way to market them to the general populace. And so Sean Connery in the first James Bond movie, Dr. No, he looks at this beautiful woman and with a cigarette kind of dangling out of his mouth, he says to her, my name is Bond, James Bond. And people just lose their minds. They're like, it's so cool. I mean, he's got the Irish accent, he's got the cigarette kind of hanging out of his mouth, and so young people thought, oh man, I want that. That's normal. Not understanding that what they were doing was addictive, not understanding that they were potentially sucking cancer, causing tar into their lungs, it was simply normal. Here's my question for you today. I wonder in the future particularly as we get to eternity and we have God's perspective, I wonder if we were to get to eternity and go, wait a minute, why did we accept that as normal? That is there something today that the world tends to normalize and say, no, that's, that's, that's good, that, that's fine, that we will look back on with God's perspective and say, mm, ah, that, that, that should not have been normalized. That, that, that was something that God didn't want us to do. And you might say, I don't think so. I mean, we're, we're so much smarter than we were in the 40s and the 50s. I mean, we're much more progressive today than we were then. Author C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. It's the idea that all new ideas are better than old ideas, that what we're doing now is clearly always better than what we did before. But sociologists have now coined a new term called the myth of progress. And the reason why they had to coin that term was because for years in America, we felt like we were moving towards this progressive utopia. Things were just going to keep getting better and better as we got new breakthroughs in technology. And here's what the progressive utopia said in part. It's this, if we can just break free from the shackles of religion and its repressive ways, we will be enlightened and free to enjoy our lives. In other words, if we can just get rid of God, if we can just get rid of do's and don'ts and rules and authority figures and all these restrictions in our life, if we can just be free to do what we want to do, then we're going to be happy. The problem is, according to almost any study that you look at, people aren't getting happier. If you look at almost any study in America today, joy levels are down. Gratitude levels are down. Mental health, down. Violent crime, sexual sin, all, all of it going up. Where is the progressive utopia? 
It seems that no matter how many elections we hold, how many policies we put in place, there is a sinfulness in the world. There's a sinfulness in my heart and in your heart that is persistent. And all this brings us to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John was written by a man named John. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was actually one of Jesus' closest followers and friends. And he was the only disciple who wasn't murdered because of his faith in Jesus. He was exiled to an island off of Greece called Patmos, where he lived to be into his 90s. Jerome, who was a 4th century Christian, says that when John was in his latter years, he was so frail, people would have to carry him to church. And when he would come to church, he would look at people and he would just say this, Dear children, love one another. John cared a lot about love. But John also understood that love goes both ways. In fact, wouldn't you agree with this statement? That what we love shapes what we don't love? If you love your wife, that means that you don't love other women in the same way. If you love the Vikings, that means you don't love the Packers. I talked to someone one time, they're like, I love the Vikings and the Packers. And I said, no, you don't. You don't understand. If you love one, then you don't love the other. What we love is shaped by what we don't love. With that in mind, look at what John says in chapter 2, verse 15. He says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. Why does he say do not love the world? Because he says the next verse, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. If you love the world, then you don't love God the Father. If you love God the Father, then you're not going to love the world. What we love is shaped by what we don't love. John goes on in the next verse and he says this, for everything in the world. And you might be wondering, what do you mean by world? You're talking about the world and it's an enemy of the soul. What, what, what do you mean by world? Well, well, John defines in this verse, he says there's three characteristics of the world. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He said those three things, they do not come from God the Father. They come from the world. Let's look at each of these individually. The first one is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is, I just want to feel good. We're, we're kind of taught today that if you're not happy, if you're not feeling good, well, you need to do something about that. You need to take a pill. You need to take a drug. You need to have another drink. You need to look at something on the computer that's going to fire dopamine into your brain. You need to do something, have a sexual encounter. Do something that will make your flesh just feel good. It's a worship of pleasure. And it's the lust of the flesh. And it's all around us in the world. The second one, he says, is the lust of the eyes. And the lust of the eyes is, I want that. I mean, man, if I just had a boat, I mean, this summer, it's just been a hard summer, and if I just had a boat, can you imagine sitting out on the boat, got the line in, oh, I'd be so relaxed. My life would be so much better. I mean, if I just had a nicer car, if I just had another home, if I just had this, if I just had that, then I'd be happy. I just need more things. The final one is the pride of life. The pride of life is social media feeds right into it because it's all about my image 
how people perceive me. I want people to think I'm awesome. I want people to think I'm great. I want people to see me when I walk in a room and go, wow, they're smart, they're good looking, they're funny, they're talented, whatever it is, but I want you to have a certain perception of me. And it's all around us in the world. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan begins to tempt Jesus, and Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, and here's the first temptation that Satan gives to him. He says, hey, look at those stones over there. You could just turn those into bread. What's he doing? Lust of the flesh. Hey, you're not feeling so good? Well, you can fix that if you just turn those stones into bread. And Jesus declines. And so Satan moves right down the world playbook. He moves on to the second one, the lust of the eyes. He takes Jesus up to the highest mountain. He shows him the kingdoms of this world. And he says, you can have all of this. If you had all that, man, you would be happy. And Jesus declines. And so then he takes Jesus and he says, hey, what if you went up to the tallest peak of the tallest building in Jerusalem and you threw yourself down and then you had angels rescue you? I mean, if people didn't think you were God before, they would think you were God after seeing that. I mean, how cool would that be? You jump off the building and the angels save you. It's the pride of life. It's no wonder Jesus says this about Satan. He's the prince of this world. He wants to offer you, he wants to offer me everything in the world to solve all of our problems. But like in the song that we just sang, you can have the world. Just give me Jesus. Because sometimes you can't love both. I mean, I know people, and you know people probably as well, who they don't follow Christ because they love the world. And they will never say that to you. They'll never say, you know, I don't want to follow Jesus because I really like sleeping around or, you know, whatever it is. They don't say that. They'll tell you they have intellectual reasons. They'll say, well, it's a fairy tale, and I don't believe in myths like that. They have some kind of condescending intellectual reason. But let's be honest, it's not like they've read 10 books on the resurrection and concluded that it didn't happen in human history, at least not most people. For most people, they say, you know what, I don't want to follow Jesus because I just like the world. And I know this is true because this was me. Before I was a follower of Christ, it's not like I was a hardcore atheist, I just love the world. I love the idea of walking in the room and having everybody go, oh wow, look at him. And so I try to do good in school, and I try to do good in sports, and I try to have a girlfriend, all the things I thought was going to give me the pride of life. And I thought if I could just get some more things, if I could just save up and get a cool car, well, then I'd be happy. And if I could just feel something, so I'm going to go to that party, and I'm going to drink, or I'm going to look at something online, or I'm going to you know, go, because then I just want to feel pleasure. And I thought that would satisfy my soul. But what I found is what so many people have found, what many of you have found, where Jesus says this, you can gain the whole world, but you can lose your soul. And I wonder today, I worry today that there might be some of us who are taking in this message, you are gaining the world. I mean, you are making money, you've got things, you have pleasure, I mean, you just pleasure all the time, entertainment, people look at you and think you're amazing. You've got the world. You're gaining the world. But you are losing your soul. You are losing the part of you that is the most important thing. 
It's the part of you that God created and God loves the most. It's who you are. Don't gain the world and lose your soul in the process. Even if you're a follower of Christ, it's easy for worldliness to begin to seep into our life. And so here's the main point of today's message. It's this, be careful what your eyes see and be careful where your feet go. My first job out of college, I was a student pastor, and one time I took a group of 13-year-olds down to this concert. It was a Christian concert. It was at a club in downtown Minneapolis right off of First Avenue, and it was amazing to see these kids, you know, just worshiping God, but when the concert was over, there was only one exit out the main door, and there was just a ton of people trying to get out, and I got impatient, and so I turned to the worker, and I said, is there any other way to get out? He said, yeah, that side door will lead you right out onto First Avenue. I said, perfect. I kind of shooed my kids out the side door onto First Avenue, and right when I got out there, I thought, I am going to lose my job. (laughs) Because it was the weekend before Halloween, and I don't know when this happened. I don't necessarily remember this being true, and I was in my 20s. Maybe I just wasn't invited, but the weekend before Halloween has become the weekend when people dress as immodestly as they can, and then they call it a costume. And so I'm walking down the street with these, you know, 13-year-old boys and girls, and I'm, like, covering their eyes the whole way. And these guys are like, what was that? That was weird. And I'm like, I know, but just don't look. Just keep going. And every other person seemed like they would yell swear word or yell at my kids in some way. And I thought to myself, what a contrast. I mean, just a few minutes before, my feet were in a place where Jesus Christ was being worshipped, and now my feet are in a place where Jesus Christ has become a swear word. Proverbs 4.26 says this, watch the path of your feet. Are you doing that? To take it a step further, are there places that you go, that your feet go in life, that cause you to be tempted to become more worldly? Maybe you say, I go to the bar, I go to the club, and I just find myself caught up in the things of this world. Maybe you go on Amazon and you're like, I just want to buy something to feel better. Maybe you get invited to speak at conferences or seminars, but when you do, it puffs you up with pride. Maybe for you, it's social media, and you start comparing to other people and wanting to manage your image. Maybe you say, you know what, I'm just not going to go there. I'm going to watch the path of my feet. Watch the path of your feet. Watch what your eyes take in. Our, Our eyes are the same way. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Habakkuk. And at one time, the prophet Habakkuk says that God is so pure, he cannot look at evil. We do it all the time and call it entertainment. I I just saw a show recently, it was being streamed on Amazon, very popular among teenagers, and I thought, I don't know if I want my kids to watch this, so I went in on PluggedIn.com. It's a great website for parents, grandparents. And here's how it described this popular show. It said, it normalizes sexual sin. In other words, there's nobody on the show going, hey, kids, you should just hook up and fool around with whoever you want before you get married. It's going to be great. But everybody's just doing it. And it seems normal. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's going, well, you maybe shouldn't do that. It's just, it's just normal behavior. There was other sexual sin that was normalized. Language, nudity, all of it normalized. And I'm reading this and I'm going, as an adult, I wouldn't even be want to watch this show, let alone a 17-year-old whose brain is still being formed. Now, I'm not saying that you should boycott all media. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that Jesus says that your eyes are the lamp into your body. 
When your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be healthy. They did a recent study on Barna among Christian millennials. And what they found was the average Christian millennial takes in 2,800 hours of digital content that's described as worldly kind of in nature. And the average Christian millennial takes in 150 hours a year of Christ-centered content. Now again, I'm not saying they need to be equal, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out 2,800 hours, 150 hours... You're probably going to have a hard time loving God more than you love the things of this world. When I first became a Christian, I was in my early 20s, and this was like late 90s, early 2000s. I was really into rap music. And I wish I could tell you it was all, you know, MC Hammer, too legit to quit kind of thing. But the first two concerts I ever went to was Bone Thugs and Harmony and Notorious B.I.G., Classic band names, right? I mean, right up there with Hall and Oates. It's like Hall and Oates, Bone Thugs. They're in the kind of the same vein. But I remember as I became a Christian, all of a sudden, God began to sort of do something in my spirit. None of this stuff bothered me before. But all of a sudden, I would listen to the music, and I'd hear a four-letter word, and I'd just sort of cringe a little bit. And then I would hear the way that women were described as objects to be used for your sexual pleasure. And I thought, I don't know if that's how I should be viewing women. And then I would listen to the glorification of alcohol abuse and drug use and glorifying the ways of this world. And I started to go, ah, I, don't, I just feel uncomfortable with this. And I felt like God was saying, you need to get rid of those CDs. And so I did, partially. I got rid of about a hundred of the CDs. I, I said, you know what, Shaquille O'Neal, Shaq Diesel, that album, yeah, that can go. I bought that in a moment of weakness. But I'm not going to get rid of Tribe Called Quest or Nas. And I thought God would be thrilled. I thought God was like, oh, wow, you used to have 500 CDs that glorified sin, and now you only have 400. Way to go. And I just knew, I just realized, no, 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 that was not what God was looking for. And so I got rid of all of those CDs, and all I can tell you is from my personal experience, I never regretted it. It sent me into a season of spiritual growth in my life where I was experiencing the love of God and receiving the love of God in a new, fresh way. Is there anything like that for you? Is there anything in your life that you go, you know what, if I were to get rid of this, I'd be less worldly. I'd be less influenced by the ways of this world. Or I've started to normalize something that really ought not to be normalized. When I talk to grandparents and parents, and the topic of this world comes up, a lot of parents and grandparents kind of get wide-eyed. And they're like, man, everything's changing so fast, and I don't know how to raise my kids and my grandkids in a world where, where everything just seems to be going so fast. And I feel that as well. I was with my 11-year-old son at a gas station two weeks ago. And we're standing at this gas station waiting to check out. I've got a bottle of water. And my son goes, man, those cookies look good. Cookies right by the register, right at my son's eye level. And I looked over at the package and I thought, that's a weird package. There's something about that that's strange. And so I started reading it closely, 50 milligrams of THC in the cookie at the gas station. So if I look away and my son wants to just like slip that in his pocket and go eat some cookies in the car, well, he could, he could probably do that if he wanted. 
And I turned around, and there was pop that was looked like root beer, but it, I looked, oh, it's 50 milligrams of THC. And so I thought to myself, oh, I, I guess we're going to have this conversation. I guess at the age of 11, we're going to talk about being sober-minded. I, I guess at the age of 11, we're going to talk about not being controlled by a substance. I guess we're going to talk about when you're stressed and you're tired and you're frustrated. You don't need 50 milligrams of THC. You need the peace that only Jesus Christ can offer you in your life. But we're going to talk about that at the age of 11. And that's just normal. That's, that's the world my son will grow up in. My oldest son came home from school when he was about 9 or 10 in third grade. And he asked me a question about sexual positions. And there was a number involved in that. And I said, excuse me? I said, where, where, where did you hear about this? I tried to kind of keep it cool, but I'm like, where, where did you hear about this? He said, oh, so-and-so was talking about it at lunch. I said, let me get this straight. You're sitting at the cafeteria table, and you're like, I can't get my chocolate milk open. Someone help me. And then tell me about these sexual positions. Well, well, well how did this come up? He said, well, his dad watches these movies where they're doing these things, and, and he sees them, and then he was telling me about it. Turns out the dad watches pornography, the kid sees the pornography and thinks, well, this will be a kind of a fun conversation at the cafeteria tomorrow. So I'm like, okay, I guess nine years old. I guess we're going to talk about pornography. I guess we're going to talk about the dangers of seeing those images and the lack of intimacy it can lead you to in marriage one day. But I guess we're going to talk about that now at the age of nine. And that's just normal. That's just the world. And so if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, you see these things and you go, ah, how am I supposed to navigate this as a parent? I start to get nervous. I start to get anxious. And so I want to give you today the words of Jesus Christ. Because when you believe these and memorize these and internalize these, it's so powerful. He says this, in this world, you will have trouble. Yes, that's very true. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says, when you start getting anxious and nervous about this world, and you start living in fear about the direction of this world, here's what you need to remember. I overcame the world. I'm in control of the world. I've defeated this force of the world that wants to pull you away from me. Another time, Jesus said this. He said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give is not like the peace that the world gives. So do not be troubled or afraid. There is a peace that only Jesus Christ can give to you. It's a peace that goes deep down inside your soul. And this world will promise you, this world will say, oh, you're, you're, you're struggling, you're frustrated, you're tired, you're stressed. We can solve that. You just, you just need some more pleasure. You just need to feel good. You just need to buy something. You just need to get something. You just need to get a promotion. People think great about you. Get, you know, approval. Like, you just need those things. But that will leave you empty. That will leave you wanting more. That will never leave you satisfied in your soul. Jesus says, there is a peace that I'm offering to every person. And it's not like the peace that the world gives. It's a peace that will go to the deepest parts of who you are. Jesus, another time, said this. He said, if you are a follower of Christ, no one can snatch you out of my hand. 
No one. I was walking with my daughter through a busy parking lot the other day, and she kind of got this little scared look for a second. I said, hey, it's a busy part. Hold my hand. And she ran up, and she grabbed my hand, and she kind of started skipping with a smile on her face through the parking lot. And I thought, we might have all things around us that cause us stress and anxiety and fear. We might have all sorts of things around us in the world. But when you're holding your father's hand, you are safe and secure. You have peace. Some of us today need to reach up and grab onto God's hand and say, God, I need you. I've been trying to find it in the world, but I need the peace that only you can give to me. Today, we're going to celebrate communion together as a way of saying, Jesus, we don't need the world. We need you. We love you. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. He then took a cup and he raised it. He said, this is my blood. Shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we do. Before you receive communion today, I would love for you to take a moment to confess your sins just to God. And remind yourself of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. And then to ask yourself this question, is there worldliness that has begun to creep into my life? And how can I... Say, God, I don't need the world. I need the peace that Jesus Christ offers. When we're done receiving communion together, the band is going to lead us in a song called Good, Good Father. And as you sing this song to God, I want you just to remind yourself that you can reach up and you can hold on to your Father's hand. And no matter what's happening in your life and no matter what's happening in the world, you will be safe and secure and you will have a sense of peace. Let's pray and receive communion together. you to stand as we sing one more song together today.
that you promise those who call upon your name. So right here, right now, in this moment, we call upon the name of Jesus. Send your peace to each and every one of us. And Jesus, we thank you for this time of being gathered together as a church to be able to celebrate communion together and to just be in your presence. Thank you. Be with us now, Jesus guide our steps, every single one of them, God, and help us live how you want us to live. And we pray all of this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen, church. So good to sing with you. If anybody needs prayer, come on down. Prayer team will be up front. We'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you next weekend.